How am I supposed to follow that? I mean, seriously, that was epic. You came to the right church tonight, did you not? Yeah. I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm just going to say we might be the only church on Christmas Eve worldwide to have played In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. So that was amazing. Well, Christmas Eve is here. Merry Christmas to you. My name is Ryan. I am the lead pastor here at Genesis Church. It is an honor to be with you. And Christmas Eve is my all-time favorite service of the year. We have 52 services a year, 53 sometimes with Christmas Eve, and this is it for me. I love it. There truly is something in the air on Christmas Eve, isn't there? There's just something about it you cannot get it wrong. Uh, The song Jack and the band just played is an all-time classic song from the great Phil Collins, who was also, ironically, the lead member of a little band you may know called Genesis. Yeah, intentional, I'm just saying, (laughs) right? And uh, that song was released in January of 1981. It was the song called In the Air Tonight, and it was Collins' first solo hit after he had left the band Genesis. It soared to the top of the charts. Uh, it soared to the number two position uh, on the UK singles chart list. It, it soared to number 19 on the US Billboard 100. And the song itself has this eerie, almost haunting sound to it, doesn't it? It's so much so that Catherine Walthall, who is a writer for American Songwriter, she writes this about the song. She says, In the air tonight, haunting because, well, it's slightly haunted. This song after he and his first wife, Andrea Bertorelli, Bertorelli, divorced. And the singer was haunted by the emotions that came rolling in afterward. You know, the, the song is most famous for its memorable drum fill at about the three minutes and 30 second mark of the song. Uh, That's my son, Evan. Um, I mean, that is like the drum fill you want to, yeah. That is the drum fill you want to play in a live setting. Everybody knows it. Now, if you know anything about Phil Collins, he's the great leading man, but he's also an incredible drummer. And so if you go to a live show of Phil Collins, he will start the song singing out front and slowly make his way back to the drums he plays the drum fill on his very own song, right? He does it all while continuing to sing, too, which is quite amazing to me. But if you're like me, when you hear that song and you come on, you just sit and you just wait for that moment, right? Like if you're in the car or you're sitting at home, you're like, it's coming, it's coming. And you do your best impersonation of a drummer hitting the drums. You all do it. I know you do. The car is swerving, you know, because you just got to be it. That is the moment of the song. Now, it's possible that you were brought here tonight and you are wondering to yourself, what in the world is happening right now? I went to Christmas Eve service and they played a Phil Collins song. I don't understand. Why are these people playing Phil Collins on Christmas Eve? What does Phil Collins and In the Air Tonight have anything to do with Christmas? Well, as Joe mentioned earlier, we've been walking through this series of messages on Sunday 
things called Classic Rock Christmas. And in this series, we've been taking a classic rock song uh, that also gives us a little bit of insight into some of the themes and the message of Christmas. And you'd be surprised at the songs that are out there all the way back to the 1950s that give us a little bit of a glimpse or a hint into the story of Christmas. And tonight, as we celebrate Christmas, we're going to look at the portion of the story that shows us there truly was something in the air on that very first Christmas. So we do something around here. Uh, we have this app that we utilize and tap into called Uversion. You can download it for free. It is the most downloaded Bible app in the world. You can go in there, and if you go to live events, you can actually follow along with everything I'm going to read and cover tonight. And you can also use that as a resource. Maybe heading into the new year, you want to read some more of the Bible. It is a great, great resource. So open that up, and as you find your place, uh, I just want to give a little bit of background before I start reading the passage we're going to be in. Now, up to until this point in the book of Luke where we're going to be, we're made aware that there's this young woman named Mary, and she's chosen to give birth to the Messiah, and she's supposed to name him Jesus. Now, the whole thing, though, is scandalous. Like, this would be on the front page of the tabloids. You know, this would be, like, viral on TikTok and Instagram. What is happening to Mary at this moment? You see, Mary is engaged to a man named Joseph. Not married, engaged. So her getting pregnant in the first century is certainly going to fire up the rumor mill, right? Joseph even considers calling off the marriage because of what it's going to do to his reputation and to hers. After all, how is he supposed to explain to his family or friends or acquaintances or his co-workers that Mary is pregnant, but that it's not his, it's God's? Try that one out for size this week and see who believes you, right? How will anyone believe him when they say the baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit? Can you imagine the conversation with the parents? I mean, if it was me, I'd be like, Joseph, try again, man. Try again. Like, not buying it. Try again. This is scandalous. This is unheard of. And yet Mary and Joseph are so committed to their faith and who God is, their belief and what God wants to do that they say, yes, come what may, we will be the parents of the Messiah to come. Joseph hangs with Mary, Mary hangs with Joseph, and they decide to help raise the child as their own. Which is, we're going to pick up the story in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now Mary is pregnant still, and Luke tells us this. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Now let's just 
stop for a second. I want us to take notice of the absolute inconvenience the emperor is causing for Mary and Joseph here. The Caesar at the time, Augustus, he decides, I want to hold a census so I can count how many people are under my control. I want to make sure that everybody who calls themselves a part of this empire I have is paying their fair share. Let's call everybody back to their ancestral towns where their lives are recorded, and then I can take a consensus so I know how amazing I am. I mean, that's what's going on here. Augustus doesn't need to do this. He just does it because it makes him feel good. Now, to do this meant that everyone in the first century, had to go back to the towns and the cities of their ancestors where their records of birth were located. So nine-month pregnant Mary, ladies, you remember what it's like to be nine months pregnant. Some of you know, right? Nine-month pregnant Mary and then Joseph are forced to travel 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem so Augustus' ego can grow. 90 miles. Now, for us, we own Teslas and, you know, hybrids, and some of us still use gas, you know, and whatever. We could drive 90 miles, you know, some of us in 45 minutes, most of us in an hour and a half, and we'd be there lickety-split. That is not how this works in the first century. There are no cars. The only way to get there is by foot. They would have to walk or in probably most cases, ride their way to Bethlehem from Nazareth. 90 miles. For Mary and Joseph to reach Bethlehem from Nazareth on foot or on donkey would take them about four days if they were traveling eight hours per day. It's like Mary rode on the donkey of some sort, of, of some sort while Joseph walked day after day after day after day. They would spend nights, most likely, on the side of the road with others who were traveling for the same reason. They would have to find food as they were going about from town to town. Then when they finally make it to Bethlehem, they have nowhere to stay because everybody who's from that ancestral town is heading back to Bethlehem at the same time. Bethlehem is a small town. It is not equipped to carry thousands of other people who are there for the census. So people are just living out of their, you know, their, their trunks, so to speak. They're living in tents. They're all over the place. And Mary and Joseph have nowhere to go. Mary is nine months pregnant. She can't just sleep on the side of the road anymore. So luckily, they find this barn, probably some sort of cave, where they could at least be warm and rest as they wait for the census to end. Now, you'd think that Mary and Joseph would be like, look, it's just going to be a couple days. You know, our due date's not for another week. I don't know if they knew that kind of information then. Probably not, but let's imagine they did. Our due date's not for another week. We're going to be okay. We just need to get through the next couple days. If we could just push through the next couple days, maybe we can make it back to Nazareth and we'll be at home and you can have the baby then. But Jesus, well, he has his own timetable, as do all babies. And so, with nowhere to stay, Mary goes into labor. I remember when uh, my first child was born, Landon, and um, we were like a mile from the hospital. And I was nervous traveling from my house to the hospital with my pregnant 
uh, wife who was in labor at the time. I was a nervous wreck. Can you imagine being in a cave, a city you don't know, after having traveled on foot for four days? How Joseph and Mary must have felt in this moment. Put yourself in their shoes for a minute. But the Messiah of the world, well, he's waiting for no one. Certainly not Mary and Joseph. And there among the animals and the stench, Jesus, the Messiah, is laid in a manger. And here's the thing. As all of this is going on, there is something stirring in the air around Bethlehem. Look at verse 8. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those to whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Well, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened, what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished, but Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard. It was just as the angel had told him. When my youngest son, Evan, who was the drummer this today, was in preschool, he was in a nativity play. You all know these Christmas plays, right? The cutest telling of the Christmas story anyone has ever heard. Preschoolers dressed up like Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, and the angels and cows and donkeys and all that, right? And among all of them are these cute little shepherd boys. Man, they're cute. And they got their costumes and their crooked shafts and they're super adorable and they're not singing any of the songs. They're just waving at their mom and dad, right? Y'all been there? And look, while that is appropriate, it is for a preschool play, this is not what the shepherds in chapter 2 would have looked like. They were calloused, smelly, dirty, hardworking men and women. They spent their days and nights outside among the flocks for months at a time, raising them. They rarely spent time inside the city and were mostly avoided by those who are of any importance in the communities around them. Daniel Darling writes this in his article, Nobody's the First to Know. He says, shepherds were not really considered part of polite society in those days. They were required to tend their flocks outside the city gates. The only reason shepherds had any significance was because sheep were a valuable commodity, especially as it got closer to Passover when many lambs would be sacrificed in the temple. You know, shepherds were needed, but they were really not wanted by the rest of society. They were asked to stay away except 
when the majority needed them for sheep during the Passover. And so as a result, shepherds didn't have a whole lot to look forward to in life. Right? Life was hard. Life was painful. It was mundane. And the future, their future was always uncertain. They didn't know what was going to come the next day. And yet, into their reality, angels appear to them and invite them to become the very first visitors of God in the flesh, Messiah, Jesus which, by the way, would have been someone they were well aware of. They were shepherds, but they were also Jewish men and women, which meant they knew the scriptures. They knew the promises of Jesus to come, promises that you can find in Isaiah and Micah and Zephaniah and Zechariah. The prophets spoke about Jesus coming. They knew this. And though it was shocking to see the angels tell them Their eagerness to go and see this Messiah, well, it was deeply rooted in who they were. Something was truly in the air air that night for the shepherds. Phil Collins' song could have been the anthem of the shepherds on Christmas. You know, Collins' song is a cry for help in the midst of his pain, despair, and uncertainty. His life is in shambles when he's writing this song. It's a man who's caught up in his own suffering and anger. He's looking at the world and hoping, begging for something to come his way, something to bring a new sense of joy, connection, and purpose. It's something Collins has said that he's been waiting for his entire life to come to him. And yet into the middle of it all, He says he can finally feel something in the air. Something seems to be shifting for him. Something is starting to change. Something new is happening in the midst of his pain and his despair and his uncertainty. This is the story of the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. This is the moment that they had been waiting for their entire lives. They were certainly tired of their lot in life. Nobody cared about them. It wasn't what they dreamed of as a child. Nobody, you know, when the, when the teacher asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Nobody said, I want to be a shepherd and live outside all my life. Nobody said that, right? This wasn't their dream. They weren't considered valuable members of society. Nobody actually cared about them, only the sheep that came with them. But then in Luke chapter 2, they can finally feel something in the air. Something is changing for them. Something is shifting. Something new is happening. Something that they've been waiting for their entire lives is taking place right before them. And that something they find out was the arrival of God among them. Emmanuel, Messiah, King of kings, prince of peace, wonderful counselor, mighty God, the promised one from the prophets arrived and they were to be the first to meet him. No matter how unlikely, they were the first to see the Messiah. And their encounter with Jesus would change everything for them. No longer would they see their pain as useless. No longer would they feel like social outcasts. 
No longer would their, their future be uncertain. The king had come, and no matter their circumstances, hope was now fully available to them. So changed are they by this encounter that Luke says they went about Bethlehem telling people about what they'd seen. They just couldn't hold it in. I mean, can you imagine these dirty, smelly, calloused shepherds running through the streets of Bethlehem, grabbing people by the tunic and telling them what they had just heard and seen? I can only imagine like a group of smelly farmers running through Scottsdale Quarter, grabbing people and saying, you got to hear what I saw tonight. Pandemonium was going on. People couldn't quite understand what was happening, but this was it. This was the promise that God had made hundreds of years prior. Come to life. It was right before them. This was going to change everything for all eternity. A lot was happening in the air that night. Because into the darkness came light. And into the despair came hope. And into the pain came healing. And into the shame came forgiveness. And into the uncertainty came assurance. You know what, 2,000 years later, man, there is still something in the air on Christmas. The announcement the angels gave to the shepherds is still well and good today. And if they came right now, if they came right now, they might say to us, good news is here that brings great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Can you feel it in the air tonight? Can you feel love, grace, hope, peace, certainty? It is he, he is here. And he came for you. He came for me. He left heaven to be among us, to live like we could never live, sinless and blameless. He endured temptation and pain and suffering and uncertainty just as we all do. He knew all about despair and shame and uncertainty, and yet he still came for you and for me. You know, I told a few people this week that Christmas Eve really is my favorite service of the year. And yes, Easter is a close second, but there's just something about Christmas Eve that is just special. There is truly something in the air on Christmas Eve. And I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think it has anything to do with the excitement of opening presents or time off from work or dinner with family. Those are all well and good. I think that what makes Christmas Eve so special is how incredibly outrageous and scandal it is that God, the creator of the universe, would step down from his heavenly realm and into our broken world out of love for us. Listen, Jesus wasn't just God's sidekick. Jesus was and is God. We know that from the scriptures. Jesus didn't just arrive on Christmas Eve. He did come to earth as a baby on Christmas Eve, but Jesus has always been. He is, as we sang, the Alpha and the Omega. He was there at creation. When everything was put together, Jesus was present. In fact, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that Jesus wasn't just there. He was actively a part of making all of this, including you. In Colossians chapter 1, 
Paul writes, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. That's what he did when he came at Christmas. He took God and he put flesh to him. He goes on, he existed before anything was created. He's supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything, listen, everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. I just want to make this point a little bit more understandable for us, okay? So I want you to do something with me. This is participation time, okay? Participate. I just want you to hold your hand out and take a look at it, okay? Just hold it out. The Bible says that through Jesus, your hand wasn't just made by and through him, but it was actually made for him. And that right now, on December 24th, 2022, take a good look at it, this hand is being held together by Jesus. Your whole being is held together by your creator. Jesus, look, if you look around, everything you see, touch, smell, hear, it is held together by the same one that came on Christmas. He holds it all together. When you walk outside tonight and you catch a glimpse of the stars, it's held together by him. When you breathe the air, it's held together by him. When you go home and you pet your cat or your dog, held together by him. When you say goodnight to your children, held together by him. When you eat the Christmas dinner, held together by him. When you look in the mirror before going to bed at night, take a little bit closer look and remember, I'm not only created in the image of God, but I'm held together by the same one who came to earth for me. The very one who holds it all together, who by his power and strength and love makes everything possible for us. He is the same one who looked on us, on his creation and said, look out, I'm coming for you. This was not the way I wanted it. And I will not stand by and watch you in pain and in suffering and in certainty. And so instead, he said, hold my hot chocolate and get out of my way, right, PG? I got to make this right. And he came to earth for you and me. The same one that holds it all together came for you. And then when he came, he came just as we entered this world. He decided the only way to bring healing and hope and future for us was to live just like us to experience what we experience, and to know what we know. And then if that weren't enough, he would give it all up. He would endure unimaginable pain and suffering for you and for me on the cross. So we would be forgiven for all of time and be made right with God once and for all. 
Can you just feel the weight of that? Can you begin to comprehend the absolute enormity and scandalous nature of what happened on Christmas? I mean, despite its small beginnings and hidden nature, can you understand how ground-shaking and world-changing this event really is? It's no wonder there's something in the air on Christmas Eve. So listen, I don't know what the past year has brought you. I don't know what 22 has brought you. I, I don't know what 2023 will bring you, but here's what I do know. Come what may, Jesus, our Emmanuel, will remain. The story of Christmas will not change. It's not going anywhere. He will have come for us, for you. Hope and joy and healing and forgiveness, they are and will continue to be found in him and in him alone. You can search the world and not find what the shepherds found on that very first Christmas. Trust me, I know I've tried it. You can search the world and not find what you will find in Jesus. As Phil Collins so famously wrote, I can feel it in the air tonight. Can't you? And let me just say, if you can, if you could feel that, that the creator of the world came for you, holding everything together, holding you, knowing every inch of who you are. If you can feel that tonight, the invitation is fully available to you. Jesus just says, come and believe. He says, I have come for you in love. So just let go of your searching and place your faith in only one place. Place your hope in the one who holds all things together. The one who came for you to save you, to give you new life, to bring new hope in your despair. Let's pray. Jesus, there is truly something in the air tonight. Your spirit is here. You are with us. And Lord, I don't know what is going on in the hearts and the minds of every person in this room, but God, I know that there are people in this room who maybe for the very first time are saying, I can feel it in the air tonight. The Christmas wasn't just something for everybody else that Christmas was for me. You came for me. And, and so God, I just ask that by your spirit, you would speak those words to them again to say, come and believe. Come and find rest for your weary soul in me. Come and forgiveness and hope in me. And if you hear that invitation, hesitate. Respond and just say, I am here. The Bible says that when we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that He is the Lord, the Emmanuel, the Messiah, that He forgives, that He saves, that He gives new life. It is fully available. No matter who you are, what you've done, or where you've been, Jesus calls out to you again tonight. 
says, I came for you. Hold it all together. I am here for you. Walk towards me. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.